but we also have to look at who are the daily mentors who push us and inspire us and you might not talk to them for three three or four months but then suddenly you might reconnect with them and then you realize why you reconnected with them mm-hmm. because they also inspire you so it's 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 a difficult question to answer but i would say that every day we have the opportunity to be to be mentored when we open our minds and are present Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. I'm your host, Eric Wenzel, as always. Feeding Curiosity is a podcast that explores the precarity of human experience, and we challenge ourselves to think, question, and synthesize wherever our curiosity takes us. It is our hope to provide blueprints for others to learn and lead a more fulfilling life through these conversations. Our guest today is a leading educator who has taught in over five different schools over the last 18 years. His name is Andy Vasili. Andy has a education and psychology degree from the University of Ontario, Canada at Windsor. He's also an international educator and consultant and the founder of the award-winning blog Pipe PE with Andy and it's P-Y-P-E with Andy.com. For those who want to check it out, there will be a link in the show notes. And he previously worked as a child youth counselor and at a young offenders facility in Windsor, Ontario. And it was through this experience he first realized that stumbling blocks and injustices that many of these people, uh, young people face in their daily experiences. And as a result, a, seeing a need for change, he pursued a full-time career as an educator. And he's a deeply introspective person and everything he does is through the lens so that he can show up in his own life and how he can pass on as much of his own learnings to his family and to those around them. And in this conversation, we are so much alike that this conversation is less of an interview and more of an active discussion where we're sharing our own thoughts and ideas and molding and shaping them as the conversation develops. And as a note too, uh, we were recording this over Skype, so there is some quality issues and, and they come and go a little bit. I've tried to smooth them out as much as I can. Everything is still relatively easy to hear but it does get a little bit robotic like so just wanted to throw it out there and then also this episode does end quite abruptly you'll know when it ends but andy had to leave due to circumstances with family to make dinner so no issues on that end but there will be a part two of this conversation we didn't touch on all the topics we wanted to touch on uh in this first hour and so with that everyone please enjoy this part one conversation with andy Vasili. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. And today's guest, we are joined by Andy Vasili. Hey, Andy. Hey, how's it going, Eric? And and thanks a lot for the invitation to be on your show. Yeah, this is awesome. So this, just as a disclosure, you're actually all the way in Saudi Arabia. So this is the farthest podcast I've ever recorded. You know, nine hour time difference from us. It's really, really cool that, you know, through technology, we can make this kind of connection. Which is the the cool thing is that I am in Saudi Arabia and Mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia gets a very bad rap around the world, you know, and, but they are committed to change. I've been here four years and they're extremely committed to change. So I tell a lot of people that I speak to from outside the kingdom of Saudi Arabia Mm -hmm. that it is the most exciting time to live in a country because 
you know, the doors were closed to Saudi Arabia forever, you know, and then suddenly they've opened their doors and, and they're bringing in tourists. And that's how I told you my mother-in-law from Canada, Mm -hmm. she came last week on a tourist visa and they are, the Saudi Arabian government is promoting lots of sport events here and building new hotels and they know that they can't sustain themselves on oil anymore. So they are now tapping into the tourist industry. So it's their attempt to truly change. And I work with Saudi, you know, I have many colleagues that are uh, native Saudi Arabians and they're wonderful people, you know. So when you get down to the finer uh, details and nuances of, of people in general, yeah, there's there's a great appreciation for me being in this country and, and the people I've met here and the locals and everybody is the same, the same around the world and what they want and and the love that they have for their kids and family and, and so forth. So, yeah, it's, cool. it's great to be in Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. and speaking to you from here. <laughs> yeah, wow, that that's so cool. And I mean, you I shared mean, with us the, and by us I mean the Compute Degree group about your little background on teaching at KAUST, is that how the acronym is? And just watching the video, it's a very interesting thing because it it's at once modern, but still holds a lot of the traditional values of, of the Arab, Arab countries. And it's like this weird blending of the new and the old in some ways, as I was watching it to kind of just, you know, prepare for this. And I, I, it's one thing that I always kind of, or have gravitated towards as I've gotten more exposure to podcasts in particular, like growing up in the United States and in particular the Midwest, the families here, especially my own family, we have very deep roots in the sense that you come to the Midwest and you stay in the Midwest and to travel outside of the Midwest, it has a, like, there's a lot of friction to get people to move. And the, for me, like with my family, I've only really traveled within like the three neighboring States being like Wisconsin, Indiana, and maybe Iowa. But outside of that, we haven't really moved around and any other travel I've done has been through my own friends going to other places. Like I've been to Cancun and I've been to now California. And then I want to, I've been bitten by the travel bug. I don't know if it's my generation, but I just want to see the world and broadly speaking, become a citizen of the world. And when I see someone like you, you pretty much embody that, you know, you're, you're someone who was born in Canada, as far as I can tell from like your TED talk. And then you've kind of jumped and worked in all different countries all over the world. And that's a kind of a thing that some people don't really know how to grapple with that. Yeah. And you know, when you, when you speak about that, the reality is, so I'm from the Midwest too. If we consider the Midwest from North South, yeah, like the full we start in, in the South of the U S and move all the way up to the North of Canada, that's where I'm from. So mm-hmm. I'm from Windsor, mm-hmm. Ontario, Canada, which is border city with Detroit, Michigan. I spent a lot of time in the States and Michigan and Ohio and, and uh, Kentucky and Tennessee golfing. I played a lot of golf. So for, for me, I, I was very much a uh, hometown kind of Windsor, Ontario person. I went to the University of Windsor. American football was my first real love. I played a lot of golf. I played on the university golf team, but playing on the football team was my focus. And, you know, I figured that after I ended my football career, I had a short professional tryout that didn't work out. But I felt that 
I was going to stay in my hometown and I was going to teach in my hometown or be a police officer. You know, a lot of the, the teammates that I played with were either cops, firemen or teachers. And then suddenly I was presented with the opportunity. I had been dating this, this girl from a uh, woman from uh, the university. She was studying nursing and, and then she was from Toronto and then she wanted to kind of go and experience the world. And then she had an opportunity to go to Japan after we graduated. And I was really set on staying where I was, which is Windsor, Ontario. And then the opportunity presented itself for me to go to uh, Japan. And I was going to go for six months and play football there. And then suddenly that turned into 10 years we got married, two children, then we moved to Eastern Europe, Azerbaijan, then we moved to Cambodia, then we moved to China for five years, and we've been living in Saudi Arabia for four years. So what a beautiful life experience to truly be a, an international person, you know? And I think that's what we're saying. The world is changing so rapidly and we're becoming so uh, globalized, you know, that there's no other way to look at it but to be internationally minded. I, I couldn't agree more with that. It, it To me, it's just it's just so fascinating because it's like it's at the edges where, where domains and people and ideas get to mix together and you get to create new shades and new textures that are the most exciting thing about this stuff, you know, and, and this has like been a new theme that I keep seeing around is like on the internet, we, we like to say how polarized it is or campy or tribal and all of that. And it is true to some degree, but what I see now is like, we're, we're getting into this point where people are like, okay, I get it, but let's, can we be better? Basically? Like everyone's asking like, what, okay, what's, how do we, we see how bad it's been and where is it going? And, and your story is like the perfect example of just, you had the opportunity and you had a person that you were going to follow anywhere basically. And, yeah. and you just kept going. And it, it's, I think pulling on that thread, it's like when you have this opportunity in life, you don't have to have it all planned out. And you just say, well, I guess if I really care about this thing, whatever the thing is, it could be a person, it could be a job, it could be whatever. And you just keep going. And all of a sudden, you, when you have a chance to reflect on it, you realize, wow, look how far I've come. Yeah. You know, and this is 20 years in the process, right? So I left Canada in 1997. Wow. That's a long time ago, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I remember so clearly to this day that I was such a hometown kind of person. I will never leave here to suddenly going to Detroit Metro Airport to leave to leave for the first time, you know, I had done some traveling a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, in the States playing golf and to Jamaica and, you know, but I had never gone internationally. Mm -hmm. And, and suddenly I was, I had packed up everything. I sold my car. I quit my job. I took a leave of absence. Actually, I was a child youth worker. So I was working with kids with uh, behavioral and mental challenges. Oh, cool. And I, I took a leave of absence and I said, I'll be back. I just want to go do this for a bit. And then I was at Detroit Metro Airport. And it was at Detroit Metro Airport where I was ready to fly out. And I called my dad on the payphone. And I literally broke down in tears. And I was like, I am so scared right now because I don't know what's going to happen. And in that moment, I was 
in tears. I'm reflecting like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? And, and my dad was like, well, like you're going to be okay. You're just going for a little while. Well, a little while ended up 10 years and a little while ended up connecting with beautiful Japanese people and families and becoming a part of the Japanese culture and having this amazing experience and then suddenly getting married and having two kids and experiencing a, a, a completely different life. And that's when my world and my life changed. I said, I'm not going back to the person that I was. I'm not going back to my hometown. Not that I didn't want to go back. I said, I will go back to my hometown, but I'm not going to be the same person Mm -hmm. because this has opened my eyes to the amazing world that is in front of us and available to us if we are open to that experience. Yeah, that's so cool. Like it's, it reminds me of like some of the stuff I even I've been through over the last year, just getting into psychology and mindset. Like my background is engineering, but I I keep seeing this stuff with mindset and how psychology helps at once individuals, right? Where we get stuck in our own loops or patterns or whatever it is. And and you've already been talking about like the integral nature of movement. It is to function well, or, you know, pulling on that thread to self-actualize, I guess is the correct word. And, you know, when, when you get the chance to, to experience something, cause I think that's really what matters. Like you can't, you know, psychologically, you know, lock yourself out of something without actually ever giving the effort to do something. And, and, you know, it's, of course it's scary, right? You're going to always have those moments of like, what, what if I fail? Or what if, you know, why am I here? <laughs> and, and you're going to want to get cold feet and pull away from that edge. But if you hadn't followed through with that, you wouldn't be here today and be able to talk about as many of the things you do. And did you, for me, like, did you go into this with research or was it just kind of like, well, this is what I have the opportunity to go with. And did you just dive, try like, yeah, I'm just in. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? It was, it was all in because the (laughs) internet didn't even exist. Yeah, I guess it's true. It was 97, right? So it was still a bumpy ride, the internet, you get on the internet and it's slow and it's, Mm -hmm. and it's clunky. And what I did was I had been offered, so I played American football. I call it American football because I can't call it football because that's soccer everywhere else in the world. So American football was my life, you know, and that's what I grew up playing. And that's what gave me so much hope and purpose. So I had my professional tryout um, as a quarterback and a punter in the Canadian Football League. And I did quite well in the tryout, but the reality was, and thinking back, I could kick and throw a football as good as any quarterback and punter in the U.S. and Canada. But I was 5'10", 170. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I ran probably a 4'940". You know, so at the time, even though I could do some really good things with the football and I felt that I could make it in the Canadian league. There was no place for Canadian quarterbacks and punters in the Canadian league in my home league, you know? So I started to look at options to play uh, professionally in Europe and I had an opportunity to go and coach and play in Belgium. And I thought, perfect. So my wife, uh, girlfriend at the time who was graduating from nursing, I said, let's go to Belgium. 
We'll just go there. I got a, I got a coaching job. I can play. We'll get an apartment and a car. It'll be beautiful. And then she totally flips everything upside down and says, actually, no, I'm going to go to Japan with my sister. And then I got all pissed off. And I said, no, but we had a plan to go to Belgium. And she said, well, just come to Japan and play football. But the going to Japan, they didn't allow foreign players to play, but I could coach. So I, I did a, some whatever research I could do on the internet at that time. And I found out that Hiroshima, I went to Hiroshima, Japan, Hiroshima, very historical city, right? That's where I lived for 10 years. And I found out that they had a football team and I faxed a letter to them and they said, please come, you can coach us. And when I arrived two weeks later, I was, I was coaching the team and I was punting and throwing and they're like, wow, you can throw so well and you can punt, but you can't play for us because there's no foreigners. So I coached them for a bit and then, but that was the, the clunky days of, there's no research. You got to dive in. And that's what I did. And I think that's the fear I experienced at Detroit Metro Airport. I was diving into the unknown. Mm-hmm. I truly was. And I was scared shitless, but I, I felt that I was, I was also proud of the courage that I was taking in the moment to make that leap into the unknown. That's awesome. I mean, I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't agree anymore. Like you can see and learn from those people's lives and as much as you can. Right. But there's a point where you can only absorb so much from someone's lessons. Like you have to go out and live it. Like experience trumps everything regardless of whatever it is. You know, you got to, there's, there's a point where it's like you see all these courses, especially now because we're recording this in the, the middle of December where it's everything online right now has sales for classes or something or like new year's resolutiony things. And it's like, every time I see someone and they discount these courses like astronomically and it makes me a little sad because I'm just like, all these people are going to get really gung ho about buying a course and they're going to be like, yeah, I'm going to be to do X or I'm going to start working out or whatever. But that motivation isn't usually doesn't last, you know, it lasts for maybe two weeks and then it, then it goes away. And then all of a sudden that course just collects dust or whatever it is that gym membership doesn't get used ever again. Yeah. And I think just like you just have to make the commitment that you have the you're going to see whatever it is that you're doing through to the end, right? And the, the, I think the important thing to realize is that there isn't an end, <laughs> and that it's always yeah, going to evolve. Yeah, and I think that's that's the thing, and that's why New Year's resolutions don't work out because they're they're short term fixes mm-hmm. to long term challenges. Right. Yeah. And Albert Bandura, Dr. Albert Bandura, who is one of the most amazing in my in my mind's eye, one of the most amazing psychologists that ever lived, speaks about proximal goals and and that idea that you can have your dream, you can have your vision, please have your dream and vision, because life is about dreams and visions. And if you don't have a dream and a vision and you don't actually see what you want in your mind, then you'll never get there. But then that's not enough. And that's what Dr. Gervais, Mike, talks about all the time, is that that's not enough. That's not enough to get you to where you want to be. You now have to break it down into the micro steps needed 
to get you to that goal. And I think that's one of the big things that people miss out on is actually sitting down and doing the hard work of mapping out the day-to-day work needed to get you to your destination. And then when you get to that destination, that destination will then take you to a new destination. So it's not looking at it as the absolute end goal. It's just the next goal, you know? Yeah. And I think that's where everybody falls short, you know? Even myself, I still fall short. I try to stay active. I I try to meditate. I try to eat well. I try to do all of these things. But it's like if you don't plan accordingly, it's it's can be very it can be very difficult to follow through in the long term. Yeah. And yeah. So that's that's kind of the, the, the big thing that I'm grappling with now. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And like for me, the big thing is I, I get really like bullish on frameworking. I, I really look at like how do you organize like your day to day routine or weekly routines to allow yourself to have less cognitive resistance to be able to do what is the best, right? Like I just wrote about a a mental framework called the Eisenhower decision matrix. And it's a two by two grid where you have what's urgent and important. So it's urgent, not urgent, important, unimportant. And Mm -hmm. basically the quote is like, what, what is important is seldom urgent is a quote from Dwight D. Eisenhower. And in our modern lives, many things feel urgent and both important. You know, it can be meetings. It could be, you know, the next phone call you got to make or whatever. And it's usually dictated by someone else. And the quadrant that is the thing that we should be maximizing for is what is not urgent, but important to ourselves intrinsically. And and that's where I put a lot of these things in that category is like eating well, working out, spending time with family. And when when you really look at that, I feel like that decision matrix helps you really understand where your certain things are wasting time so that you can then organize your life around it basically to be like, okay, so if I know that working out is, is important to me, but it's not urgent, I just have to make it like check the box, like, but consciously check the box, you know, like make a routine on like a three day schedule or something, or make it like part of community where you go to like a yoga class for an hour, two days a week or something. You know, try to wrap as many positive benefits together to allow the, that cognitive resistance that'll happen because we're always going to f- like start falling short because when we're like, like I said, when the motivation goes away, there's a high probability that we're going to, you know, not want to keep doing it. Yeah. And I think what you're saying really resonates and, and uh, I'm going to check that out. I think I saw the post that you did with the Eisenhower, did you call it the Eisenhower grid or? Yeah. Decision matrix. This Yeah. So I'm going to check that out, but it makes total sense. The idea really, it, it's a constant reflection on what works and what doesn't, but it's not absolute. And, and this is the forgiveness that you can offer yourself when if you wake up late and you don't go, go work out, rather than beating yourself up and, and using negative self-talk, you're actually saying in the long run, you're checking more boxes in the long run of getting up and working out, allowing yourself some forgiveness instead of beating yourself down with negative language saying you, you know, you're crap, you, you know, you don't stick to say you're going to do. It is the long game, you know, 
and you and you build in that that forgiveness along the way. So mm-hmm. I think that's that's a really good way to look at goal setting mm-hmm. and a good way to the act of self forgiveness in the process of trying to attain that long term vision that you set for yourself. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's really important. I think a lot of times we, we overassume that we're going to perform all of the time. And, and in reality, it's like a lot of things happen, you know, life happens, you, you go out and grab a drink or something, or I don't know, it, it doesn't matter what it is. And, and it's not to say that, Hey, I'm, I'm going to fall off the horse here. It's more of like, okay, I remember a time where I was really motivated about doing this thing. And I, I know what it was like then. So I can come back to that you know, frame of mind or reference that routine. Maybe it's not a hundred percent that routine, but I can come back to it at the very least. Yeah. And I just want to share the work uh, with you because what you're doing resonates with me. <laughs> and uh, I done some work with Dr. Carl Morris, mm-hmm. who is a, a world renowned sports psychologist from the UK. And he is a sports psychologist on the European golf tour. So I met him through a friend of a friend and then I had um, done some virtual uh, coaching lessons with him. And so he was taking me through some of, you know, in my own journey of learning about myself, I had worked done some work with him and in particular about golf. So I like, I'm a pretty accomplished golfer, but mine gets in the way a lot. So I can go out and shoot even par quite easily but when my mind gets in the way, everything falls away and I end up having a terrible round, which is the game of golf. But I was trying to refine and uh, refocus my efforts to be a better golfer. So what Carl said to me, and one of the things, the great things he said, is he calls it a three-shot journal. So at the end of every round of golf, he said, you have your journal, which, which I have right here. You can see my journal. Uh, we're on Skype right now, so you see on the video call that I'm holding my journal. Mm-hmm. But it's that idea that you journal at the end of every round your three best shots. So it doesn't matter how badly you play. Now, Carl Morris has coached six major winners. So he has coached U.S. Open winners, Open Championship winners, Masters winners, He's, he's really good at what he does and he gets even the world's best to do this. So it's a three shot journal. So at the end of every round, you write in detail your three best shots. So in an average round for a great player, you're going to take 72 shots, but you're going to narrow it down to your three best shots. And at the end of every round, you're going to write in your journal, your three best shots. So then at the end, you imagine doing that for six months. Mm-hmm. You have this amazing journal of excellence to draw on of, of what you are capable of. This is not only about golf. It can be your three shot, three shot journal of life. You know, the three greatest things that happened to me today, mm-hmm. whatever it is, but you have to recognize and, and document your greatness on a daily basis and, and what you're doing well so that you can remind yourself in your terrible times, you can open up that journal and you can look at months and months and months and months of success and what you truly achieved. 
So it's that taking that three shot journal from golf, but applying it to life, you know? Mm-hmm. So your three greatest moments every day. It's, it's an easy thing. It takes five minutes of your 1,442 minutes per day, right? So it takes five minutes. So pick up a pencil and write your three greatest moments. And I myself fall short. You know, I, I do it weeks on end and then I stop doing it and then I go back to it and I do it and then I stop doing it. You know, it's just, you got to stick with it. Yeah. It reminds me of the uh, Charlie Munger. What, what, what gets measured gets managed. Mm. Say more about that. So, you know, it's the, the idea that when, if we start to, what we want to get better at or just know more about, we have to measure it. And so full disclosure, I'm wearing both an aura ring and whoop. And, you know, the science on sleep has been totally, I don't know, blown out of the water lately with, with books from uh, Dr. Matthew Walker and podcasts. He's been on many podcasts at this point. And I don't know, I read that book and it, and it totally just, I just was like all in for it. Cause it just, I just saw this thing that people in society were just, especially here in America, it's all about the grind, you know, the entrepreneur mindset, like you just got to work yourself to the ground and then, you know, you, hopefully one day you make it. And I'm like, you know, that sounds cool and I could do it. I'm pretty sure I could do it. I'm very type A, but I also think there's, there's a better way to do it too. <laughs> and, and then I started listening to all the science of this stuff and, and wearing wearables like whoop and aura ring and one comparing the data sets to how they actually measure differently, but also how looking at like, you know, a subjective or sorry, an objective number to compare against the subjective experience of what it's like to sleep. And, and I just find it yeah. utterly fascinating to be able to quantify something like recovery, right? <laughs> yeah. And what you're saying, one of the big things that I learned from, so I told you about Dr. Carl Morris mm-hmm. a few minutes ago. So I met him through my Scottish golf coach who coached on the European tour for uh, six years. And I, I had a guy on my own podcast, uh, Gary Nicol. Um, and he's coached some of the world's best. And what he is like, you can't move forward in life unless you have data. So if you're a golfer, you have data. Mm-hmm. You, you need to know what your club head is doing through impact. And then you have to know the percentage that the, your club head is off the directional path that you want the ball to go, you know? And so you really have to look at the data, but then the data Data has no emotion, right? Data is just factual. But how we um, interpret data is very personal. So we get data and we make it personal. It's about us. And, and that's why we don't accept data is because it's, it's painting a different picture of, of how we perceive ourselves, mm-hmm. you know? So data has no emotion. Data is just there. It's just information for you to reflect on and then to say, you know what, I'm going to use this and then I'm going to create a, a plan of action to move forward in a, but when we take data and we don't accept data uh, because it attacks us personally, then we're not using it to our advantage. So you're the, using everything I use Fitbit just to record my sleep and my activity during the week. But 
it's just data. It's just there for us to use or not use. Mm-hmm. So why wouldn't we use it? Right? Yeah. For for me it's it's been like this I don't know, I've been building this view of like what recovery is like and like as an engineer again, I, I, I think of these systems you know, we're, we're or rather engineers overemphasize product design or like how to lay out a factory well to, to optimize, you know, you know, I think Amazon, right, where you have a warehouse that is optimized around, around getting an order to the person as fast as it can. Right. And there's the optimization stream there. But what the thing that we don't realize is that there's a whole component that we've under optimized for, and that is human recovery. How well does a person perform every day? Because we're put under crazy hours. We have crazy, you know, always urgent, you know, we're going back to that. And and we're always kind of wound up a little bit because of just the stress of life. Because you're stuck in traffic if you live in like California or something like that. And you're, you know, you're always kind of, you know, above a certain stress sold. And so I started looking at this idea of like, how can we optimize for like, or prioritize for daily human recovery. Because if we do that, it not only optimizes our businesses, it optimizes well-being for people. And that's a new word I'm using right now with positive psychology, but, and it also optimizes how people, how they interact with those, those and what they care about in the rest of their life, because they can go to work and they work less. They can, you know, get enough sleep and they're more productive and they can go to home and they're not stressed out. So they're not talking about the things that bother them at work so they can show up for their, you know, their family, friends and whatever they care about. And so everyone in this cohesive system or at least idealized system would benefit if we can learn how to effectively manage ourselves because what society tells us is the right way to go about it, you know, obviously isn't working to some degree or another. Absolutely. And, and what you're saying is that idea of just being present, as Michael Gervais says, in the present moment, and then stitching together all of those present moments, you know, and our ability to be present is a trained skill. And, you know, you can meditate, whether you set your time for five minutes, and your mind wanders all over the place, let your mind wander with non-judgment, but to truly tap into the power of presence. And Mm -hmm. I recently had on my podcast, um, the first Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabian tour golfer. Wow. He's, he's really into, he's, he's an amazing person. He's really into this mindset stuff and, and he's trying to figure it out. And he worked with Dr. Carl Morris a couple of years ago when he first made the tour. And he, he was here, um, his name is Othman uh, Amula, and he was here a couple nights ago and we had a two-hour podcast. And as a professional athlete, he's a phenomenal golfer. What he still struggles with is the ability to stay present and not to ruminate about the past or to project into the future but to truly be present, right? And everything that you're talking about is, you know, the act of recovery is to cognitively prepare you for the present moment, you know? Because if you're not fully recovered, then you're going to be distracted. You're going to be thinking about other things. You're going to be tired and fatigued. 
So it's that element. And I've got a friend in Japan who I speak to every day. He's a Canadian Canadian guy who, who's an avid athlete and plays a lot of sport. But he's in the Japanese mindset. He's lived in Japan for 25 years where he's functioning on four and a half hours sleep a night. And he's working out. He's running a business. He's literally jogging and running every day. He's trying to fit all this in. So his idea is the old Arnold Schwarzenegger mindset, which is to work your ass off for 20 hours a day, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have four hours sleep. And the way you get ahead is to work even 21 hours with three hours sleep. That's bullshit. Yeah. Right? So my friend in Japan, and we're, we're at odds. We're debating on WhatsApp all the time. I ask him how much sleep did he get? So we're always talking about this. So he's of the mindset that you have to do, 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 do in order to be, like Gervais says, right? And I'm like, that's bullshit. You got to be, 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 be to do. Yeah. So we're, my family's going back. We're actually going back to Hiroshima, Japan at Christmas. And I'll spend a lot of time with my, my friend and <laughs> debate fine Japanese pints. Yeah. But it is the idea. This is an ongoing discussion that you have to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that's really fascinating. You know, I, I actually didn't think how I'm not sure because I'm so plugged into this newer newer view of, of recovery and, and the be more to do more category as Michael Gervais would say it. And so I wasn't sure, I wasn't sure how prevalent that old mindset is, but I guess it's still probably there with, with pretty heavily with it's there. Yeah. It's, it's there. Like I think that you, me and the others that are really investing time in the being instead of doing are still a, a, a huge minority, you know, like it, it's like, I would say less than 15% of the population actually thinks this way. Mm -hmm. Whereas the majority of the population does, does, does in order to BVB, right? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's, it, I, I like to look at it as like this word. If I could encompass all of these teaching into a word, it would be the idea of awareness. And it's an, an, an all encompassing awareness of how does your, how do you feel in the moment? How does your body feel in the moment? And how, how do like you like something deeper like how do you feel in the moment <laughs> and, and it's like all three of those things come together and basically it's like getting struck like by lightning as many times as possible <laughs> where you're just completely and you can align it, right when you can align everything yeah exactly it's a thing of electricity absolutely yeah and, and i just it just one of these things like i i it's part of the reason this podcast exists to many degrees. And it's why I even do what I do. Like I had a friend of mine asked me, he's like, he's like, why do you do this? <laughs> Which is a very fair point. Cause I don't, this is not a job for me. This is totally done out of personal curiosity and a feeling of like responsibility to give back and learn from others. And I told him, without even hesitation, because I was taught, like giving them a, a overview of my personal philosophy, which is after I came back from Seattle from the live version, I came up with a new one after doing the online course, which is now it's with knowledge comes responsibility is my new personal philosophy. And that's a combination of two, two very famous quotes. <laughs> if you're a fan of Spider-Man, you could kind of guess where that one, where most of that comes from. But I took out the word power from, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And I, 
basically, I don't care about traditional power in any way. I, it doesn't mean anything to me. I don't want to have power over anybody. I really don't care. And so my dad, when I was little, would always tell me with knowledge or knowledge equals power. And, and so I, I just remember him telling me that at really, really little age and it resonated with me. And, and, you know, I shared a story. Part of why we were connected is I shared a story about my teacher who got me to read books yeah. and, yeah. and, and her changing my perspective on what it meant to be a reader you know, telling me, Hey, Eric, you don't need to read what everyone else is reading at four years old because I wasn't interested in things. Like I was bored of it. So I didn't like, so my reading comprehension problem wasn't because I couldn't actually read. It's because I wasn't engaged. <laughs> and, and, and then my dad, once, once the flip had like the switch had flipped or whatever, my dad noticed that I would just becoming this reader. And I wound up, you know, reading like an adult thriller novel in like fifth grade. And I started from that day forward, I was reading books that were like my own, my own thing along with all of my formalized education. Like I would read the chapters I had to read for school and then I would read more books. And like that, that was my way of embodying the knowledge, you know, equals power (laughs) aspect of it. And, And then from there, it's just, I've always just had this very deep seated sense of personal responsibility. I don't know how or why or where, but Spider-Man in particular has just resonated with me since I was like five and I don't even know why, but my parents told me that I was like five and my mom called my dad and said, Hey, he really likes Spider-Man. And then I don't know. (laughs) I have no idea why, but it's still super important to me. Uh, The idea of, you know, having the geeky nerdy science guy who takes his, his brain and does good for the world, but doesn't ask for anything in return. It is, I don't know. I don't know. I just don't know what it is about it. <laughs> That's noble cause, man. That's noble. <laughs> it's, it's really, I don't know. I I'm, I've never really put the words together like that to think about it that way, but yeah, that, that is like why I do what I do a lot of it. <laughs> and you'll, you'll continue to uh, continue to figure that out as, as you go through your own journey. And, and what you're describing is purpose, really, right? Yeah. And, and really identifying what our purpose is and then sticking to that purpose and being committed to that purpose and not knowing what the answers are and figuring it out along the way. Yeah. It's, it's been a really fun road to go on this journey of self-discovery. You know, the the searching within oneself. Like I I read a book called awareness over probably like the middle of this year. And it's basically a book by Tony Diamello. He's a actually a Jesuit priest and everything he wrote is like excerpted talks that he would do on stage. And it's, it's some of it's pretty spiritual and stuff and might not resonate with some people, but it's written plainly enough that it's like, Oh, it kind of hits you over the head with it. And you're like, Hmm, I've never thought about things like that. Like t- thinking about love or, or selfishness or like holding on to opinions that don't, don't matter to you or things like that. And it was just like one of those books that I read at night going to bed in a contemplative or reflective mood. And it, it had a huge impact on me to process how you deal with, you know, loss, pain, forgiveness, you know, all of the negative side effects of being alive <laughs> to some oh, yeah. degree. It, it was a fascinating book. And I, 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 
I started a tradition this year or uh, last year where I give all of my friends books instead of things. And everyone is getting a special book that like pertains to their interests, but they'll also be getting that book because I thought it was so important for my own personal, you know, exercising of demons and things like that, that hopefully they get the same out of it. <laughs> yeah. Which is Tim Ferriss. I love when Tim yep. Ferriss asked a question about the book, you know, I was going to ask and, you at the end, so don't worry. It's coming. <laughs> yeah. But you no, know, that's what I, that's what I really believe in as well. And it's this idea of giving back and, and recently, one of the things that I've come across um, in my own life with my own family, having lived outside of Canada for 25 years, and we're in Saudi Arabia, it's a Muslim country, there's no, you know, there's no Christmas here, mm-hmm. but yes, our house is decorated, we have a Christmas tree, our boys have, have only experienced uh, two white Christmases, wow. going back to Canada, you know, when they were very young. So they don't really remember having a Christmas in the snow. So it's this idea of, you know, being connected with what matters the most. And what does Christmas represent? Ultimately, it's about togetherness. Mm -hmm. You know, it's about gratitude. It's about appreciation. So really getting our boys to understand that no matter where we are in the world, we will celebrate a form of Christmas. So we're going to be back in Japan for Christmas this year. Mm-hmm. And, and we will, we won't have a Christmas tree, but what we tell our, because we'll be in Japan in a hotel room, so we won't have a Christmas tree. But what we tell our boys is that, and I recently read this, is that the greatest gifts that you can give your children are experiences and not gifts. So every Christmas, last Christmas we were in Scotland, the year before that, we were in Japan. Actually, we're going back in a, in a couple of weeks. But every cr- Christmas, we're someplace else in the world. Wow. And, and you wake up, and, and we play Christmas carols, and we bring the Christmas stockings, and you can look outside, and it's tropical <laughs> heat, but it's still Christmas to us. But the act of Christmas is the act of giving and caring and loving and communicating, and those are the the values that we try to instill every single day in our kids. So our kids, when they're adults, I mean, our, my oldest boy is 16. Mm-hmm. My um, youngest son is 14. And I hope to hell that when they are 30 or 25 or 30 or 35, when they reflect back on what Christmas means to them, Christmas was the world. Christmas was people. Christmas was experiences and love and learning and all of those things. And, and that's kind of how we're looking at things now as we journey through our own life with our family. That's so cool. I mean, it, it, it's giving, you know, it, it's setting the precedent in the sense that, you know, Christmas is, isn't tied to a place. It is tied to an idea, right? It's, it's tied to something bigger and deeper and more meaningful than, than where you happen to be in the world. And I, and I think that's really powerful because it's, it's taking away some of the, the pomp and circumstance that is Christmas, at least in the materialistic world. And, and it really parses it down to what really is important, you know, cause you can still be festive. And like you said, you have the stockings and the, the Christmas carols, but outside can look very different than the idealized view that us in you know, America or probably most of the world think of. And, and I think it's really cool to, to have that because 
you know, it, it makes me reflect on even how, what it was like to grow up for my own Christmas. And it wasn't anything like that where we were going to places, but my dad has, is always this kind of person. And, and I, I can show you after we're done recording here, what some of my basement looks like, but my dad has always been the kind of person that when, even if we didn't have like material resources or things like that, he made it a point to, you know, show up in, in the best way possible to show that he cared. And a lot of times it would be like, dad, I really like this thing or whatever it was that we were really into. Like I mentioned Spider-Man or something like that. And my dad would go out in the world and he would find it. He wouldn't, he wouldn't make an excuse. He would go to every store he could ever imagine. And then, so it showed up on Christmas, you know, <laughs> cause this is before the internet. And so my dad always just kind of found things like he was, he's a, he's a hunter <laughs> legitimately. And so, you know, I, I remember being a part of those things and, and just having some of those memories of like, just my dad having this intrinsic value to just, you know, see, like see things through to the end, you know? And, and I, yeah. and I, it just gets hardwired into you at some point where you just see it. Someone does the leads by example and you just can't help, but do it too because you just, that's just what you saw. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's it exactly. And that's the modeling piece. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and that's what I think is so important as, and you know, I was reflecting with my wife the other day and, and it's like my one son was sick and then he comes and wakes us up in the middle of the night. And then, you know, I'm, I just want to sleep, but then I have to wake up and take care of him. And I was a bit frustrated, but my wife is like, yeah, we only have four more years with the boys, four more years. Because when the boys, you know, when, when kids go off to university as parents, you will have spent 80% of your kid's life with them under the age of 18. Yep. Right. Yep. And then when I think about that statistic and I go, holy shit, I'm getting out of bed and I'm going to go, even if it's two o'clock in the morning and I'm going to go get him a hot water bottle and I'm going to get him a cup of uh, hot tea, whatever he needs, because I, I have limited time with these kids and I want to model patience and love and all of these things to them so that they can bring that forward into the world as well. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, I'm assuming that's from the Tim Urban article that that you read. That no, what is that? <clears throat> so Tim Urban, he's a he's a blogger. Or <clears throat> excuse me, he's a blog called Wait But Why, and he has these funny little like hand drawn images about just ideas. He's a thinker, broadly speaking, and he was on Tim Ferriss's podcast. But he has a po a blog that's basically encapsulates that same idea. He just reframes the number to make it to show you in in, in pictograms, basically what it means to how much time you have left when it spends with your parents or in a, in a family unit, you know, and it, and it really kind of sends the message home when you really think about, yeah, like at 18, that's 80% of your child's life or your life rather. And it's just, yeah, it, it makes me feel really fortunate that I wasn't in a, I'm not in a rush to get out of the house or move far away from my family. And I think understanding some of the statistics of that stuff really makes it important for me to honestly not move super far away from my family so that I can still have those deep close connections going forward. And then it also is true for friends too. I have a very unique group of friends who have all been on this podcast. We've all known each other for about 20 years 
<laughs> so it's like a family you choose rather than the family you're born with, which is the craziest thing ever. But we've all kind of grown in parallel and a lot of us resonate with a lot of these same ideals still to this day, which is crazy to think that these it's like five of us that all grew up together somehow grew up along the same terms in but in parallel pathways. It's kind of nuts. But it also goes to show, you know, how important tribe and community is for humanity. And it's, I don't know, it's really humbling to think about stuff like that. Yeah, that's the art of connection, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that we are a pack of wolves. We need to connect. And whether we're an introvert or an extrovert, and we have to honor introverts and extroverts, ultimately, no matter who we are or what we offer the world, we have to connect to a group. Mm -hmm. And introverts in particular can struggle and introverts can, can feel that they have to be an extrovert to connect, but they really don't have to be, you know, introverts just connect on a one-to-one -one level deeply with others. And that's every introvert needs that every extrovert needs that stimulation of the big group and that group momentum. Uh, but we're all different, but we have to connect. And that's, that's the, the beauty of it. And that's kind of the work that I do in education is to, to honor every student and where they're at and to really emphasize to teachers that you have to create the conditions for all students to flourish. Your introverts, your extroverts, you have to find a space for all of them to flourish and, and that's what I've really committed myself to through the work that I do. So this is a perfect point that we can get into your professional background because, you know, we've gone almost an hour now and I didn't even ask that at the beginning because we just totally started riffing. <laughs> so. so my background, so I, I, I graduated with a psychology degree. I got an education degree as well. And I moved into the world of international education. So I started teaching internationally in Hiroshima, Japan at the Hiroshima International School, which was a, a combination of students. I think there were 120 students in the school from 10 different countries. And then that led to me moving to different Azerbaijan. And I worked at, at a international school there. And everywhere I've gone, I've worked at international schools. But what I've done along the way is I've kind of developed, I taught physical education and health and wellness. So I kind of developed over the last 20 years, I developed this framework for delivering meaningful physical education and movement experiences that will inspire young people to be physically active for life. And what that means is, the traditional way that we look at physical education doesn't work. It's broken. It does not serve the masses. It serves the athletes, right? So I now, a lot of the work that I do, so I'm based in Saudi Arabia and my job right now is I'm, I'm an instructional coach. So I coach teachers. So, so I coach PE teachers, I coach visual arts teachers, music teachers, and librarians. And I coach them around their practice and how they're providing meaningful experiences for their learners. But really, at the end of it, most of my experiences with physical education and health, so I go around to different countries 
I presented in probably over 20 countries on four continents to thousands of teachers about how you can create the conditions for all students to thrive physically. That means that you have to honor where every student is at and you're not serving only the athletes, you're serving every single student. So if you can get that student that, that doesn't like sport to embrace movement for life, then you've done the best job in the world, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I go around the world and I just kind of teach teachers how to inspire students to want to move. That's that is so cool. And I wish I I wish I had a teacher like you when I was little because <laughs> I was that student who did not connect to movement at all uh, growing up. I was, you know, I kind of mentioned the reading aspect of it, but I was also really cerebral in general. I was instead of doing whatever other kid did, I watched History Channel and Discovery Channel and was kind of locked in my brain and and I wrote about this it was actually the episode with the Eisenhower dis- decision matrix is how I basically reframed my entire thinking about movement broadly speaking because I always thought myself you know especially growing up I saw people around me who could express themselves physically right they became the popular kids they became the kids who people looked up to because they could do other things that kids couldn't or it's easy to measure against right you like if you run faster than someone else you know you know right away right <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, I, absolutely, you know, like, and so I was always the kid. Go ahead. I don't mean to cut you no, off. I'm fine. just saying that exactly what you're saying is the purpose of my work. And the purpose of my work is to take every single student like you, you know, very cerebral, a reader, somebody who's going to go into the physical education space and not want to play team sport. So, why and it's not that they don't want to play team sport it's just they have other interests so why not create a physical education program that allows for movement so you imagine going to pe class and and we're going to teach after christmas we're going to teach a health and wellness unit a, a fitness unit yeah so how i'm pitching it and then i get to go the beauty of my job is i get to go in and and co-teach and kind of model lessons. So I'm like, you know what? Let's get some of these kids just into power walking. So why not allow them to bring their device, listen to music and power walk around the field, listen to a podcast, listen to an audio book and power <laughs> walk around the field. How big of a win is that? Yeah. Right? So it's opening up the minds of the teachers to what's possible so that at the end of the day, you can look at your 23 students or your 31 students or your 19 students, however many students you have in the class, and know I have done a great job yeah. because I have inspired movement under their terms and conditions, but under my own terms and conditions within the curriculum that I'm operating in. That's so cool. I mean, it's just... I love the idea of, of one being able to adapt to the student's needs, right? Being able to take a student where they're at and the, the only goal, you know, it's not about, you know, pass fail or, you know, getting an A it's about taking them from where they were and just moving them up one notch, 
you know, and if they're able to take it and run with it, awesome. You know, if they're able to take the torch and go light it, you know, on the next one or whatever, that's, you know, that's gravy. You know, everything else is gravy. But if you can just make them, you know, 1% better than when they came in through that door or at least light a fire behind them, I think that you're winning. And I, and I love the distinction you made there is is calling it movement, not working out. And I don't know if you want to elaborate on that because I think that's a really important distinction. Like it's like meditation versus mindfulness. I think, you know, yeah. unpacking those terms is really important. Yeah. And that and that's it. So that is exactly the challenge that I bring to the teachers that I coach and the schools that I work with. And I was recently in Abu Dhabi and I was working with a group of teachers there and, and I was just talking like the first thing you have to do when constructing a curriculum is to, in terms of physical education, is to look at what's available to the kids outside their community. Don't bring in this curriculum from someplace else and try to drop it in and make it your own because it will not work. So you have to look at what options are available. So can the kids cycle? Can the kids skateboard? Can the kids play racket sports? Can the kids do this? And, and then once you figure out what the kids can do outside of school, you build your movement program around that, right? So then the kids are super inspired to, so in Saudi Arabia here, we have a skate park 500 meters away. We have tennis courts, we have squash courts, we have lots of paths to bike on. So what I'm trying to do here over the past four years is to create cycling units and power walking units and skateboarding units because if we can inspire the kids in PE, what are they going to do? Take action. They're going to want to get skateboards. They're going to go to the skate park. They're going to want to get a bike and ride on the pass. Mm -hmm. They're going to want to go to the racket club and play tennis and badminton. Now you've inspired lifetime movement. So that's what it's about. It's not dropping in this curriculum, one size fits all. No, it's looking at what you have first and then working outward mm -hmm. from that. It's, it's providing the blueprint basically, right? It's like, here, it's like, here's the access to the information and like, here's how like the fundamentals of it. And it's not to, you know, overly overly push the the athletic component or the sport component and say, yes, you're going to compete if you do this thing. It's more of like, hey, if you enjoy moving in this way, keep doing it. You know, we've gave you everything in this run with it. A hundred percent. I've got a friend who's a researcher at the University of Kentucky. And, and the beautiful thing uh, that he did was he had done a bunch of research with his PhD grads, mm -hmm. how people in Kentucky are active after high school. The overwhelming majority of people were active through gardening. Oh, wow. So then, then he said, okay, so let's scale this back and let's introduce gardening in PE. Such a physical thing. You're touching the earth. You're shoveling. You're, mm -hmm. you're moving <laughs> rocks. You're, you're you doing don't this. Don't get much more functional than that, right? Right? <laughs> so, so let's actually introduce gardening in PE. How great is that? Right? That has and a then, double whammy too, man. <laughs> so then you have this great garden in the school, and part of the, the program is to go out there and manually work in the garden, and the kids fall in love with it. 
because that's what the statistics and the data say is that kids, you know, adults are most active cutting their grass, weeding, you know, their gardens and planting and doing all of this. Yeah. And that's, that's, you know, that, that opened my eyes. I, I connected with him about seven years ago and we've been in touch ever since. And that's, and so now I'm introducing that to schools in the Middle East saying gardening. That's so let's go. cool. I didn't even yeah. think about that, but that's such a cool, like holistic thing because you get students interested in gardening and say, look, it keeps you active. And then, you know, you start wrapping in the, not just flowers, but even crops. And then all of a sudden you start having, you know, self-contained community gardens that, you know, are creating yeah. their own food. And then I, this is just me going off with my systems thinking, but <laughs> it just sounds like a cool thing. And then, you know, adding in positive psychology in there, you know, if people are invested in things that look nice, you know, cause you have extra green and foliage that people are attending and care about. And then all of a sudden it just has all these positive reinforcing benefits that, you know, you can't, it's like, you, why not? <laughs> Oh, yes. It's so exactly. cool. It is such a cool idea. I never even, I don't know why I didn't think about that either. It's, a, it's so, you know, it's kind of right there in your face. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yes. From, from the education standpoint, did, did you have a specific goal in mind? Like was teaching or education something you were always interested in or was it more driven by your love for sports and like trying to figure out your own internal world? And then that just kind of facilitated you being able to reach out to that as you know, for other people. It started with physical education and sport. That was my background. But then it moved into more holistically how I can engage kids in learning mm-hmm. that is meaningful. And, and then that kind of took over my pursuit and my profession was like, how can I make a difference in, in really instilling in young people a desire to learn and then to create the conditions for them to learn on a continual basis, which is completely away from the control and compliance model that is ancient to more of autonomy and voice and choice and action and agency and to create the conditions for kids to work within those parameters in order to find out what they love and what they're passionate about. And that's what I firmly believe in. So the whole testing thing, you know, mm-hmm. is up the window because it just doesn't work. Yeah. You know, you can teach to the test or you can, you can teach to the love and passion of every young learner. So I'm, I have devoted my life to, to teaching teachers how to teach to the love and passion of every learner. It's so good. It, it makes me really happy to hear like professors like you or educators who are, I guess, pretty meta where you're teaching the teacher, but it's really, really cool because as my education ended within college and, and things like that, I, I was really fortunate at the community college I went to where we had a lot of real world practical teaching. It was very applied in like a hybrid, some would say even like a trade school where half of the students would go on to become engineers and the other half of the students were like adult learners who were already in jobs and they were just never got a degree, but their companies were like, Hey, you've been here long enough. Just go get this associates. We'll promote you and you'll, you know, you'll, you'll be, you know, able to upgrade your path basically. 
And a lot of those people, it was like Motorola era guys. So they're all like from cell phones, first generation, early nineties and stuff like that. And they had the ability to be teaching as if it was a business, not in the sense of like, I'm a button pusher, but in the sense of, I need to give you real world problems. I give you all of the tools necessary, all the equipment necessary and the basic foundation of to solve said problem. And then they leave the room. And then the people who get it and the people who understand it wind up teaching other people in the room as, as like in part of the labs. And for me, I excelled in that environment. You like, it felt like giving me a breadcrumb trail. And I knew, you know, as soon as I had the first breadcrumb, I was already down like breadcrumb three <laughs> because I yeah. just understood the foundational stuff. And then I could teach other people and other people would look at me and say, how do you get this so much? And I would be like, I don't really know, but I'm going to help you get to where I'm at. <laughs> and it was the fun. It was the most enjoyable experience I ever had in school. And it happened in college, I never had the point where someone just gave me the tools necessary to problem solve and to be like, oh, hey, you can actually do something without someone saying you can go do it, basically. And I think part of that is having good mentors. And it sounds like you've had many good mentors in many different domains in this day. Is there any ones that like resonate with you or, you know, you remember most? You know, like over the years, I've had so many and when I think to early days, I, I think of my Canadian history teacher who was always there for me in high school. And high school was obviously, you know, for many kids, it's a difficult time, especially when you're experiencing some family trauma, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I had a history teacher who was phenomenal, you know, and he was always there. And it wasn't about the history. It was about the mentorship and you know, it, I learned so much from him and I connected with him and, and then in university it was a couple coaches that I had and then moving forward, it's like mentorship comes in many forms. Mentorship can be a fleeting moment, you know, where you meet somebody and you're like, wow, that person really made me think differently. So the big question in life is like, who inspired you? Right. And yes, we have some pivotal moments in life where people stepped up to the plate. And if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be doing the work that we do. But we have to stay open and present to the to the daily opportunities that come our way to be moved and inspired by people who cross our path. And those are the the mentors as well. Those are the people who are mentors. Mm-hmm. And I think that mentorship comes in many forms, you know? So I'm, I'm always like completely inspired by people, but for the big ones that stood out, it's, it's my teacher in high school. It's my brother-in-law, my sister's husband, who it was a really tough martial arts dude who kicked my ass, who made me, made me always look at the goal and to work hard to get there. And he wasn't very nice and I didn't like him, but I love him now. Mm-hmm. And he's, a, well, he's literally like a brother. But, but I think, you know, we, we have to look at, you know, your question is important. Who were the big mentors? But we also have to look at who are the daily mentors who push us and inspire us. And you might not talk to them for three, three or four months, but then suddenly you might reconnect with them 
And then you realize why you reconnected with them Mm -hmm. because they also inspire you. So it's, it's, it's a difficult question to answer, but I would say that every day we have the opportunity to be, to be mentored when we open our minds and are present. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It, it is hard because it, it almost does it injustice to, to everyone you've been fortunate to cross paths with. You know, it's a sense of gratitude that I have many times. Um, doing this podcast in general has, for me, unlocked the, the ability or the the sense of gratitude I have for conversations, for conversations of depth and connection and meaning. And so whenever I meet someone new or make plans with somebody, I, I really go into it with a deep sense of gratitude that this person like yourself could literally be doing anything else right now with your time, but you chose to talk to me. And, and it's really, really, you know, it's humbling and it's awesome to, to be able to have that sense about it. And I think, you know, we, we, if we go in every moment with a sense of gratitude and being grateful for it, you wind up walking away from it, learning something at the very least. Cause a lot of times people are more negative than they should be about things like, Oh, this person was whatever, you know, they, they always have like a kind of a chip on their shoulder about interactions of certain thing. And it's like, if you just realize that, you know, that we have a finite amount of bandwidth and when people choose to use it, like with you or, you know, to do that, it's, it's really powerful, I think. Yeah. And that makes total sense. Right. But that's a conscious effort to recognize that and, and to be in the moment. And one of the things that we do as a family is when we go out for dinner, devices are away, there's no devices out, but then we actually do a moment where we just say, okay, boys, let's just look in the restaurant right now. And when we look around the restaurant, there'll be lots of families there and every single table, most tables, mm-hmm. multiple devices out. Mm-hmm. So you have this disconnected presence, right? And I look at it, I'm so sad to see that. And, and the boys, and I want the boys to see that. And I want the boys to see the disconnect. Mm-hmm. It really is such an important thing because as much as you might, you feel your phone buzz in your pocket. Oh, somebody contacted me. Oh, mm-hmm. social media. Really what it is, is this is our moment to be together. And then when you actually look around and see everybody on their devices, it's like the Jetsons. It's, it's like, I can't believe that people can't hold sacred mm-hmm. the connection between family members and to look at each other in the eye and to talk about what worked well that day. Yeah. What didn't, what are you hoping for tomorrow? What's worrying you? What are you anxious about? All of these things and to have those discussions. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the symptoms like I was talking, we talked about before with like social media and stuff like that. Like we, we get sucked into these, these devices and, you know, they feel so important, right? Because the illusion and the, and the psychology that goes into them, you know, they, they, they push all the right, you know, little dopamine buttons. Like my little fun way of thinking about this is it's like having an IV drip of dopamine for your, you know, that's in your pocket. And, and, you know, if you let it do that to you, then it will distract you from what really matters. And that's the, in the moment of like who you're with. And it doesn't matter who it is. It's your family, your friends, your significant other, your coworkers. You know, we, 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 you know, 
underprioritize the moment where it's like sometimes devices feel feel more real or more connected than they actually are. And I, and I really push back on that stuff because I, I just think there's a better way to go about it. Like for me personally, I have 90% of my notifications turned off. I have like phone calls and I have text messages and, um, about, about that's about it. Like everything else, I don't have any notifications on my phone because it's not, it's just not necessary. Like I don't need my phone or Facebook or Instagram telling me when I should be looking at it because it doesn't mean anything. Like it'll be there however long it'll be there and I'll, I'll get to it when I get to it. <laughs> and so it's just kind of, you know, I'm, I'm really bullish on this because I think human connection is so important. And like what you're saying here with like the cell phone stuff, I really reconnected to that with podcasting. When this first started, it was me and my friends kind of having for lack of a better term, barroom talk where we would, you know, all going to grab a beer and we'd sit around and talk about consciousness or the meaning of life for three hours and get nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> and then we, we know we, or we'd talk about things that you shouldn't be talking about. And, you know, we get a little heated and into it, but no one hated each other at the end and no one got angry and, but no one took out their phone for three hours and everyone was locked into the discussion, having fun. You know, everyone was into it. And I was like, huh, there's something here. <laughs> and that's going to do it for part one with Andy Vasili. He had to run really quick to go make dinner for this family. So right timing for us talking about all of this connection and, you know, making time for the people that matter most for us. So we will have part two in a couple of weeks come out where we'll pick up where this discussion left off, but it'll be its own self contained conversation so you won't miss anything if you don't listen to this one or you only listen to number two but i really highly recommend listening to both of those episodes so i will see you all in the next episode i want to take a quick second and talk about how you can support our show I believe this is the most honest way that I can connect with you, the listener, and put it in front of everyone. You can support our show for as little as 99 cents a month. We release four podcasts a month, all at an average length of about an hour. That means you are supporting us at just 25 cents an hour. That's, a, that's cheaper than the dollar menu. I think it's safe to say that we provide more value than that. And if you learn anything from our content, please consider becoming a supporter today with the link in the description of any episode or on the website at feedingcuriosity.net. And with that, thanks for listening and please enjoy the show. You just listened to an episode of Feeding Curiosity. Thank you all for listening and tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a like, subscribe, go check out the website over at feedingcuriosity.net and all the other things that we're doing there. And once again, thank you all for tuning in and we will see you in the next episode.